You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Flora Collins on the show with me today. She has an amazing new novel. It's called Nanny Dearest, and uh, this is what... This is a phenomenal book. I, I'm I'm just stumbling over myself to tell you about it because I've had an, an art copy of the book for a while, and it it gives me so many uh, so many vibes of uh, I, I I can't even begin to tell you what it compares to, but it is uh, it's it's amazing. It's an amazing psychological thriller that uh, that I have a feeling that we're going to uncover some stories here today. They will make it even more intriguing. Uh, welcome to the show, Flora. Thank you so much, Hank, and thank you for that kind intro. I'm very, very flattered and appreciative. Oh, you're you're so welcome. I absolutely love the book, and um, I knew when I saw the book uh, that, and and I, I know that you know the the old adage you never judge a book by its cover, but we all absolutely do. And um, you know, I knew from the cover that this was going to be. This was going to be a, an, an exciting read, and it definitely lived up to it, so I'm, I'm happy to talk about it today. They really hit it out of the park with the cover. I was very happy with it, um, and I, I love the red hair, too. Very striking. Yes, absolutely. Um, Flora, before we get into all the great stuff that we're going to talk about today, we begin each show with the same question, and we have to start there. What is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Wow. Yes. Oh, gosh. This is going to sound uh, a little bit ridiculous, but I honestly feel like I came out of the womb (laughs) storytelling. I cannot think of one specific memory that is when I decided I wanted to become a writer. I've always sort of babbled little stories to myself, to my parents, even as a very small child. When I learned how to read, I was reading voraciously. It's just really always been a part of who I am that I just cannot pinpoint one moment when I pivoted and decided I'm going to become a writer. It just has always been part of me. That's amazing. Um, And, and you know, I, I get that answer quite a bit from people that uh, some people have a, a moment, you know, where it dawns on them that this is this is something that I want to do. But most people, it's just kind of an an innate, just, just thing within them that it's just it's just who you are. Now, the the story of you know how they went to write their first book and you know get publication and all of that, all those stories are are varied. Um, but sometimes there's just something inside that just says this is who I am and this is what I'm going to do. Definitely, and I I think that I luckily had parents who were very supportive of that craft. So. They never, you know, squashed my dreams. They were always very much advocating for me to pursue my writing in, in any kind of form that I wanted to. So I give them a lot of credit for that. 
were were you a bookish kid? Were you, you know, one of those kids that walked around with, with her nose in a book all the time? hundred percent. And I'm also an only child. So I was kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was taken along a lot to, you know, grown up dinners because, you know, we wouldn't have a babysitter at night. So I would just kind of be propped up somewhere with a book, uh, you know, for hours on end. And I think that that has really shaped who I am today. I, I obviously still love, 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 love to read, but I also, you know, love observing, love being watchful, um, love meeting new people too. I feel like I'm very comfortable uh, in new settings because of that upbringing I had, which is good for a writer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in your book, Nanny Dearest, it it definitely has a um, a sensibility about it. It uh, it it harkens back. It reminds me of the style of of a lot of different uh, books and storytellers that um, y- you know that, that make those books, obviously. Um, but what was the first book that you can remember that really um, challenged you or uh, let you know that thrillers and psychological suspense were um, you know, was ground that, that you were going to plow for yourself? Oh, that's a great question. I've always really loved suspense, you know, movies, books. I read so much R.L. Stein when I was a kid. I loved Stephen King adaptations, like the movies. My parents were really into exposing me to like Hitchcock as a really young child. I watched The Bad Seed when I was like seven years old, which is like an old 50s movie about a a child serial killer. Uh, it's just always been my my favorite genre and has, again, always stuck with me since I was a pretty little kid. Um I would I would say R.L. Stein honestly was like my my big foray. It's a little bit more horror, but yeah, there yeah. is a suspense element too. So speaking of uh, of R.L. Stein and the the difference between suspense and uh, and and a, a psychological tale as opposed to horror, um, where do you find that dividing line where where one separates from the other? I would say horror is a little bit more graphic. There are more tropes uh, in horror that you you see sort of continuously. There's maybe more supernatural elements as well. I'm still a huge horror fan. I just do not write in that genre as much sure. as I um, as you know I, I may have when I was younger but you know they all sort of blend together I think it's hard to say what differentiates you know horror from a thriller from psychological suspense because it's all it's all suspenseful it's all kind of scary in their own special ways it, it's kind of a misnomer because suspense to me is way scarier um, than than a lot of horror, which just kind of becomes gross out. You know, was, mm-hmm. you know what what can we do to shock people and and which is a uh, a disservice, I think, to to the horror genre when when done correctly. It, you know, it it can really scare the bejesus out of you. Well, I also think that every book at the end of the day is a suspense novel. You know, even if you're reading a a rom com. It's if it's a good story, it's going to be suspenseful. You're going to want to know what 
what happens next. Uh, sure. you know, hopefully there's a, a fun plot twist. It doesn't have to be the kind of plot twist that you'll find in a, in a thriller, but, you know, a suspenseful read can be across all genres and any genres. Sure, for sure. Um, Flora, with, with a lot of people that have known that they were writers, uh, you know, for the majority of their life, um, a lot of people have, well, everyone has interesting stories, but, but some people's story, um, is, uh, you know, follows a bit of a circuitous route to get to, uh, to the writer stage, to the published writer stage of their life. Um, what was your path and, and have you always, um, has your path always, you know, been to, uh, to get you to the place where you were a, a published writer? I think it's always been my long-term goal. It's always a big dream of mine. I wrote a lot as a kid and as a teenager, and I won a lot of awards in high school for my fiction writing. That was kind of my, my shtick, my identity, uh, in, in high school. And then I got to college and I wanted to relax. I was an English major and I took creative writing classes, but you know, it, I, I wanted to, you know, have a college experience. I didn't want to, you know, only focus on my writing. So it kind of, uh, fell to the wayside for a few years, even though I, again, was taking those types of classes, uh, but I wasn't submitting to, you know, contests or anything anymore. And then in 2017, I got laid off from a media job and I was suddenly unemployed and I was like, hmm, maybe I should dive back into my fiction writing again. So while I was applying to new jobs, I started writing fiction and kind of from there, I was like, wait a second, I, you know, I want this to happen for myself. This has always been the the long-term goal. Let's see what I can do for myself. And now today I work actually at a tech startup. So that's my day job and I do content management, copywriting. So still in the kind of writerly field, but very different kind of writing than Nanny Dearest. So um, a lot of people have uh, a collection of desk drawer novels or trunk novels or you know sitting on the hard drive novels um you know in in today's uh verbiage but uh is is uh is nanny dearest the first novel that you wrote no i actually had written one other novel before nanny dearest nanny dearest yeah um as most authors i'm sure have told you uh there's yeah there's been other projects in the works before and uh, nanny dearest was the one that i was lucky enough to have sold um it yeah i started working at it on it in 2019 and then 2020 the summer of 2020 was when it it was sold but previous to that i had i had a whole other project that i was working on it's, was, it's a slog it's a slog oh yeah was it a suspense novel as well yeah it was a suspense novel, but it was a much bigger, louder concept than Nanny Dearest is. And I think when I set off to write Nanny Dearest, I was like, I want to write a very contained suspense novel. I want it to be essentially a domestic suspense novel instead of an action-packed thriller. Because 
it's somewhat easier for me to like sit in that quiet and then, you know, kind of keeping track of all the different plot threads that are required for a, an action packed thriller. Sure. Sure. Um, so having the experience of writing a book um, that you obviously put a lot of time and care into and that book not selling, uh, and then you go back to the drawing board and start a new project. Um, I've had guests like, fantasy author brandon sanderson who tells the story of writing 13 novels i believe it was before one finally sold and and you know him telling me that uh you know you don't understand i i would write novels until the day i die whether they were published or not um you know if i would have never been published my kids would have just inherited you know stacks and stacks of novels that (laughs) i had written and that was just the way it was going to be um And then, you know, I've met other writers who had one single novel and and it wouldn't sell and they go back and revise and they spend more time with it and then it doesn't sell again. So they go back to the drawing board and they work on this singular story idea over and over and over again until it becomes the polished gem that it needs to be. Um, And and I often wonder about the the motivation between uh, both of those different mindsets, Um, you know, and and writing a novel is a whole lot of work on the front end for something that may or may not pay off later. Um, So so what is it in in your mind when when you begin a new project or maybe you have another project that you finish um, that that motivates you to um, either I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, how do you know when uh, when a story idea is uh, is worth working on or that, you know, maybe this was just not the right thing for the right time. Let me shelve it and start something new. What What is that thought process like? I think it honestly comes down to and this is a boring answer, but beta readers, you know, okay. external forces. That's, that's completely valid. I think I get very, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's difficult because I think I get very, very lost in subjectivity when I'm working on my own writing. Like, I truly have no idea to, uh, to a certain point how good a project is or if it's working or not. But when I'm able to show it to people, like my agent, for example, see what he thinks. And, you know, if he tells me this isn't working or it is, that's what sort of tells me whether I should keep on going with it or not. And I, I'm very, very, very lucky to have those kinds of people in my life. And I trust them. I They advocate for me. They want what's best for me. Um, and again, it's, it's a huge privilege to have. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, 
and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place, from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com So, Flora, um, I love to ask people about where a project begins uh, because, you know, in, in, in one way, Nanny Dearest doesn't exist in any form or fashion one moment. And then, you know, either a character walks onto the stage of your mind or you start thinking about uh, maybe a news article that you've read or seen on TV or something. And then you start playing the what if game. And then in, in one sense, Nanny Dearest does exist, and it's your job as the writer to dig that story out and then excavate it, and you know, and and you know, bring it out of nothing. Um, but in in a lot of your your press material that I've gotten from Harper Collins, um, it, it says that um, that Nanny Dearest is your first novel and draws upon personal experiences from your own family history. That has intrigued me for so long, and I want to hear the story about how you connect to this story in a very personal way yes 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 great great query so fortunately i did not have a nanny who was quite as manipulative and troubled and emotionally unstable as annalise the nanny nanny dearest however my family did have or did hire a babysitter who was a pathological liar. Um, and for, you know, good reason, it, you know, it didn't shatter the family or anything like that, but it was this family lore that my parents would tell me about, you know, for years and years afterward, you know, this, this nanny who you know, starts out with like little lies and then it, it grows into bigger lies as pathological lying tends to, tends to do. Um, and, you know, with the that kind of um, seed in my brain, I was like, huh, how can I expand on this and, and make a story that is very, very loosely inspired on this babysitter and, and make it much, much, much creepier and much more sinister? When did you uh, have the idea for the the dual narratives, the 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 two different timelines and and how the story unfolds because um that was one of the the most genius uh parts of the setup for me for sure thank you so much i just find it boring to write from one point of view that's <laughs> that's my very simple answer <laughs> i started writing it and i was like oh gosh i can't continue writing in just sue's voice like i'm just getting bored i'm not having fun with this so I was like, why not have Annalise's point of view pop in there? And that's that's how it went. I I, <laughs> I was literally just sort of like, I want to spice things up. I want to change things up and I want to have more fun writing this. So and I also I find it very intriguing 
from a writer's perspective to try to get into the mind of someone who is as troubled as Annalise. Sue's also very, very, very troubled in the book, but Annalise is, is, you know, she's obviously suffering from, you know, undiagnosed mental illness, et cetera. So really forcing myself to get into her mind was a, ch- like a very good challenge as a writer. I had a lot of fun doing it. So from, you know, from the beginning, we, we kind of get the idea that, uh, that the nanny is, is up to something that there's, there's something, uh, askew with this nanny um you know you 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 kind of step into that world right away but having you know a narrative thread from her perspective um is a bit off uh, off-putting in in a way that it 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 uh how, how can i say this um it kind of uh sets you off balance a little bit because i you know from the beginning i i know that i should suspect her i, I shouldn't trust her yet seeing the story through her perspective um kind of disarms the reader uh, a little bit was was that on purpose yes definitely i really want readers to feel unsettled while they're reading the book i i want them to put the book away and still feel like they are a little bit rattled uh you know having been in the in the mind of these two women for however long it, it takes them to read the book i Remember, and this is not at all me comparing myself to Sylvia Plath, would never ever in a million years do that. But I remember when I read The Bell Jar for the first time um, in, I don't know, early high school or something, I I read it very quickly and I, I put it away. And for days afterward, I could not get out of the protagonist's head. And having had that experience, that reading experience, I was like, I want to see if I can, I can hopefully accomplish that one day in my own writing. So point being that I love that you were unsettled <laughs> reading Annalise's perspective. Oh, absolutely. And, and, uh, one thing that I love to do, um, and I do this a lot is I'll get a lot of arc, uh, copies that are, you know, paperbacks or, or, um, uh, or Kindle editions and I'll read through the book. And then when the audio book comes out, I like to go back and listen to the audiobook um because especially with with suspense books and like this there's a there's a lot of payoff at the end um and then I start wondering uh you know like like what you did to set the stage early in the book for that and then I'll go back and reread or or listen to the audiobook and it's a it's a whole new experience of of seeing the breadcrumbs that you leave and uh so how much planning are, are well first off are you a, a a plotter or um are you a pantser uh in in your writing i just learned the term pantser and <laughs> very very recently i am definitely a pantser i okay. i kind of just let it yeah let it take me where it's gonna take me and you know when i'm 200 pages in, let's say, I start really kind of, or, or maybe less than, maybe 150 pages into a manuscript. I'm like, okay, maybe I should start figuring out what exactly is going to happen next, how this is going to end, what these characters' motivations are. But for, you know, the first half or first third of a of a book, it's, it's really, they're just really, the characters are really doing their, uh, <laughs> their own thing. 
Um, I have a friend, uh, Josh Hayes, who says that we're all um, outliners. Uh, it's just some of us outline before we write the book, and some of us get to the editing phase and then outline out- the book. And <laughs> exactly. so, do do you, uh, you know, and once you've got the first draft laid out, do you then go back and start looking at places that you know I could, I could do a little misdirection here, or I could plant a clue here. Absolutely. Um, Yes. And I also think once I get initial feedback, it's really always helpful because then I can go back to specific places and, you know, add something here, add something there. I'm I'm this is very much on my mind because I'm currently in the middle of edits for book two. So I I'm sharpening that that one right now. And it's really uh, bringing to mind how much of a a pantser. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a plotter. I, I mean, I, I think I think plot development is such a gift to be a really, really good outliner who sticks their outline and, and gets it right the first time. Like I I wish I so, so wish I could be that kind of person. I think I always I always sort of know what feelings I want to evoke in in my book and, and sort of what I want my protagonists uh, sensibilities to be like, but in terms of actual plot structure, uh, not as much, which I'm sure you, you, uh, you saw in Nanny Dearest. It's, it's a very character driven book. It's not as much plot driven. Sure. Um, for the last decade or so, there've been some amazing books that have come out, uh, that are psychological suspense and have unreliable narrators and, uh, you know, some, some kind of genre defining uh, uh, books and, uh, you know, and, and really kind of ignited our imagination of what you could do in, in this genre. Um, As that has become popular, do you as a writer find that it's uh, more difficult to find new ways of, of kind of pulling the wool over readers eyes without it seeming like, you know, um, uh, with it feeling natural and not, you know, just I'm looking for the next gimmick. One hundred percent. I think it's super difficult, especially as a psychological thriller writer. And I spoke about this at length with uh, Georgina Cross, who I know you, you've interviewed. Sure. Uh, author of Nanny Needed. And we were both saying that it's yeah, it's I think it's it's gotten harder and harder because readers are a lot smarter. Audiences are a lot smarter. And it's <laughs> it's kind of it's I mean, it's it's a good challenge. Though, I will say it's it's really, really makes me want to go the extra mile and want to to do that maybe controversial plot device or or plot twist that maybe earlier on in my in my writing or in my career I wouldn't have uh, felt comfortable doing but I mean it's 2021 almost 2022 and you know there are so many psych thriller tv shows movies books it's you know we have to really (laughs) we have to bring it bring it up a notch whenever we're creating new work because of what you just said because of all the all the twists and turns that we're so used to when we watch in this genre so, so what are you working on now, uh, Flora? Like this, this book is out now. You're you're making a splash in 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 the genre for for your yourself. And uh, how do you, you know, if we know anything about publishing, is that the it, it's a long tail 
um, or, or a long lead to get the book out there. Um, and and when we're holding the book in our hands, it, it's probably been off your desk for a year or so. Um, so what what have you been doing? Uh, you know, where do your what does your creative mind turn next? Well, I had a two book contract, so I've actually been in in heavy edits for book two right now, which I'm hoping to hand in before the new year. And I sort of wrote that in nine months. So between December of 2020 and then September 2021, I, I was working on that. And that, you know, should you should be, be seeing that on your shelf, I want to say late next year. So that's really been what's uh, what my creative outlet has been. And I, I will say that the second book, as I'm sure you've heard from everyone, is is so much harder <laughs> than the first book. It's I I feel so much more pressure, and I you know really want to make it perfect. And it's also very difficult to be working on edits when I'm also doing all this nanny dearest coverage it's like i'm switching my brains from one you know one character from one book to another character and another book and obviously it's a great it's a great advantage it's like it's so 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 cool to you know have had a two book deal never complaining about that but it is it is difficult <laughs> i will say it's stressful yeah well uh today is release day for the book when people are hearing this and you can grab it in kindle edition or paperback or audiobook have you heard the audiobook yet, Flora? I have not. I've heard clips of it, but I haven't heard the whole thing. I haven't listened to it. Yeah, I got an advanced arc uh, of the audio from HarperCollins, and, and I listened to just a little bit of it, and um, I, I'm I'm really interested to to see how the narrator is going to handle this. It's it's going to be exciting, I think. I think so too. I mean, I actually advocated to have two different narrators because I was like, I want the voices to be completely like the literal voices but also the 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 characters voices to be so different uh considering that those two characters are supposed to be very very different which i think is a a bit of a a controversial choice but i think it's going to work well yeah i think it's going to be fantastic uh flora nanny dearest available everywhere now go grab it today uh, at your local bookstore or we'll have amazon links in the show notes of this episode uh floor if people are just discovering you and want to follow along you know as as the uh uh the book comes out and then follow along for what's next for you where can they connect with you online instagram is the best place to find me that's flora collins underscore author okay we will link that up to make it easy for folks to find you nanny dearest available everywhere now go grab it today Flora, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. This was so fun. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves, the Jason Crane series. Hello, young one. What ghoulish tale of horror shall we explore tonight? Shall we watch The Creep Show? The Nightmare on Elm Street? Child of the Night, give me your answer. Which one would mom kill us for watching, said Buddy. Dad grinned and his eyes grew wide. Which do you think, child of the jackal? The omen, 
And we might have time for Omen, too, if we hurry. She'll be home by eleven. I'll be back. Buddy ran to his room. He stripped down to his Yoda underwear and fished in the closet. Two minutes later, he snuck back into the living room wearing his skeleton costume from last Halloween. He crept up behind his dad, who was cueing the movie. But David Rittermeyer was too clever for that. He spun around at the last moment and bared fang teeth torn from paper plates, drawing a yip of surprise and a cry of, No fair! Daddy kicked off his Reeboks, plopped his smelly gym socks on the coffee table, another thing that Mom would hate, and killed the lights. The scary intro music began. The screen showed the silhouette of a boy, about Buddy's age. His shadow was a long, creepy cross. The Antichrist, the son of the devil born of a jackal on a night of astrological portent, destined to bring about the end times and the final battle of good versus evil. Buddy sipped sun-kissed and scooted up next to his dad. As the movie got scarier, he slipped an arm through his father's and cupped his big bicep. Buddy could feel his father's pulse. Dads get scared, too. They flinched together, shouted together, pointed at the screen and covered their faces together. Buddy pressed his eyes to Daddy's shoulder just before the on-screen maid shouted, It's all for you, Damien! and dove from the roof, hanging herself. Buddy knew which parts he was old enough to watch and which parts he wasn't. He trusted his dad to let him know when to look again. Occasionally, his dad tricked him into peeking too soon, but that was part of the fun. They kicked their feet at the screen and shouted, Look up! Look up! Oh, idiot! Don't get yourself killed! At the climax, the hero of the movie, Mr. Thorne, discovered a birthmark of three sixes on his son's head and dragged the little antichrist to the altar of the church, determined to spear his son with holy daggers and end evil forever. After it was over, the Rittermeyer men sat silently through the credits. David put an arm around his son and ran his fingers through Buddy's hair. He wasn't searching for devil marks. He knew there weren't any and Buddy was certain there were no daggers in his father's hand, either. Those things were just make-believe. Real fathers and sons don't do bad things to each other. They were queuing up Omen 2 when the power went out. No, Buddy whined. Not on movie night. Daddy went to the window. It's the whole block. Sorry, Damien. How about, hmm, scary blackout? Go get the Ouija board out of the guest room closet. Cool. And candles. Buddy found the Ouija board, hidden under old clothes. When he shut the sliding door again, the sight of a monster startled him, and he let out an involuntary, huh, sound. It was his own skeleton-bodied reflection in the mirrored closet door. He stared at it. He liked the effect of moonlight on his cheeks. Spectral. Haunted. His eyes big and white. He clacked his teeth at himself, picturing his own grinning skull under his child's flesh, and gave an evil laugh. He was answered by a scream. A woman's scream. High-pitched and far away. One of the neighbors? Buddy dropped the Ouija board into a patch of moonlight and sat with it. What's going on? He whispered, his fingers on the heart-shaped wood planchette. 